Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome into the Jeff Andreas Show here on Wednesday, March the 4th. And thank you so much for tuning in here today. Have a good show lined up. In about 10 minutes, I'll be joined by the City of Kamloops Building and Engineering Development Manager Jason Dixon to talk about building permits here in the city. The city has put out its summary of building permit issued comparison for the month of February along with its year-to-date summary, so we'll get into those details at around 9.20. To kick off the back half of the show, I will be joined by Senior Economist with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, Mark Lee. He works out of the BC office and was the lead author on a new report that was released this morning entitled winding down bc's fossil fuel industries planning for climate justice in a zero carbon economy the point of the piece is to promote the idea of getting the province on a path to net zero by 2050 and getting serious about that idea so that will be coming up at around the 35 minute mark of the hour and to end things off it will be time for another edition of that's whack wednesday but to begin today's show i am joined in studio by judy moore she is the chief librarian of the thompson nicola regional district Judy, thank you so much for coming in. Delighted, Jeff. Thank you for having me. So the TNRD Board of Directors has uh, approved recommendations to acquire capital funding and pursue site options for a new library location here in the southwest area of Kamloops. So when you're looking at a third location for the TNR library, I mean, why is this something that's important? Well, Jeff, uh, in a nutshell, there's been terrific expansion on population growth in the city's southwest. It is something that, uh, in terms of library services, that we're lagging behind with. Uh, we know that approximately 25% of our overall users here in, in Kamloops come from Aberdeen. However, um, you know, uh, we're very much driven by uh, proximity to, to library location. So um, we need to advance uh, a new Southwest Library. So is this something that has been on your radar for, for a while at, at this point? This has been something that has been on our radar for, radar for some time. Uh, in recent years, we have been filling the service gap in, in a couple of different ways. Uh, first off, we in 2018, we deployed our state-of-the-art mobile library. We had an opportunity to revisit stop locations here in Kamloops and uh, adjusted for the population growth in the south uh, by adding a, a very popular stop at the TCC on Saturdays. Uh, Juniper uh, is, is, is somewhat of a close second. We also stop at the BC Wildlife Park and uh, then have regular service up to Sahali Mall area. So, you know, as you've been using this mobile library, has that sort of helped clue into where some of the underserviced areas are in terms of, you know, the, what the library has to offer? Oh, for sure, for sure. The, uh, the response from patrons has been very, very good. And I would suggest that uh, for the Thompson-Nicola Regional Library that we are bucking trends. Uh, while most other public libraries are seeing decreases in terms of circulation, our circulation is actually rising. So we're up 4%, uh, well past a million uh, items being circulated in 2019. We know that our visits to the Thompson Nicola Regional Library are also up uh, by some 12%. Um, and, uh, you know, part of that is, is driven by a terrific emphasis on our programming efforts. And we've got fabulous staff that are really driving programming. And in fact, our program attendance for 2019 is up by 17%. 
so we know that um, that our efforts in, to, in, in terms of, of doing outreach work um, and community engagement um, are, are really paying dividends. But we also know that that we've got a terrific um, opportunity to, to, to grow our patronage up in the cities uh, south and southwest. Wow, so with the, the fact that you guys are up quite a bit in, in usage and, and, uh, and overall activity is... I don't want to say it's surprising, but it you know to me as a you know a younger person a little bit, and and I, I kind of look at the library sometimes, and I think you know it might almost be obsolete when you just think of a library as books and stuff like that. But I know there's a lot more to it than that. So can you just talk a little bit about what the library has to offer that makes it such a useful resource for people that maybe some don't necessarily think about? Um. For sure, and, and maybe what I'll do is I'll talk about three different things. Sure. Uh, we have invested fairly heavily on our in our digital resources. Um, our, our website, truth be told, uh, is by far our, our busiest location, if you will. It's not bricks and mortar, but we see in excess of 200,000 visits a year to our website. And what is happening is, is that people are downloading their books. Uh, we've got uh, terrific uh, licensing for, for um, uh, e-books. Uh, and for e-audiobooks, etc. So we know that, that that's a trend um, and is attracting a lot of patrons. I noticed, um, you know, some comments um, in the local news from somebody who said, you know, your library is much, much more than than just the the, the books and and the stacks, but but really um, we're, we're we're digital and we're in step with the way that people, um, you know, um, on a lifestyle perspective mm -hmm. are, are are using resources. So uh, our digital collection use is is up and increasing. Uh, we also are noticing, and I think it's if we speak societally to to people who who generally generally are seeing themselves in, in smaller dwellings, for example, um, you know, micro units here in the cities downtown are, are uh, becoming popular, uh, and people's individual footprints. Um, the other thing that's informing that is is the fact that. Um, you know, across Canada, more and more adults are, are living alone. Um, and so hence, um, while people are, are um, you know, connected digitally, they're, they're disconnected um, on, on the face-to-face. -face. And so our programs are bringing people in on the face-to-face. -face. Um, as well, uh, I think that need for public space is really, really important. So the physical changes that we made to the downtown library are really paying dividends as well. So we transformed a, a sort of a technology lab into two meeting room spaces. And I would challenge anybody to come into the Civic Building, uh, have a walk through the library, and each and every day we've got those meeting room spaces booked. Um, so that plays a really important role uh, for people in terms of, of library use. And, and again, just to, just to say that we've got a tremendous offering of programs. Yeah, awesome stuff. I think that's something that a lot of people just need to hear a little bit more about sometimes, just to reiterate that the library is a, is a great resource and a great place to go and, and gather. And, and there's a lot more to it than just, just books, like you had mentioned. Um, where are you, I guess, now in terms of this process for looking for a third location? It's uh, pretty, pretty, uh, pretty fresh here, I think. It's, it's absolutely fresh. Uh, we have just started to, um, you know, move forward with examining what sites uh, potentially might be available to us. Uh, I need to say that um, the TNRD is 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 very thoughtful in its approach uh, in terms of, uh, you know. Uh, spending taxpayers' monies. Uh, there was a good decision that was made many years ago uh, within the TNRD and for the library system in that we own all of our properties. So we can cost control 
people that way. Um, we also are very pragmatic in that um, we would not be looking to build a standalone library. Uh, and we need not look any further than our North Shore to see a terrific example of the library square, square on the North Shore that is co-located with residential up above um, and, and a variety of other uh, tenants on, on that main floor. So, um, you know, uh, if, if, if I could say in, in, as a visionary statement, it would be great to have a library square south. Um, and replicate something like that um, and partner with um, other organizations, uh, businesses potentially, and, and, and also residential. Awesome. And uh, I mean, this, this kind of just goes in line with, with what you just said, but uh, you know, being a, a very fresh idea, uh, is there any timeline at this point associated with this or is it just, uh, you know, we're going to explore it and see what properties are available and, and then go from there? Our master facilities plan that we completed this last year um, uh, recommended that we develop within a five-year window. Okay. So we would be looking at that, um, and um, hopefully, hopefully we have lots of really great opportunities come forward, and, and it gives us a really difficult decision to have to make. Perfect. Uh, anything else that you want to add while I have you in here, Judy? I, I think I've forgotten to tell you that um, uh, that our Aberdeen Mall, uh, we have for residents up the hill as a, as a convenience service, um, a book drop. Um, and I should mention just in terms of, of sort of filling the gap that and that's we've had that there since 2009. However, um, we are increasingly needing to pick up those materials. So we've just in the last year, we've, we've gone from uh, a pickup once a week uh, and we're doing it three times a week. So I think it really speaks volumes about how it is that, um, you know, we're, we're creating convenience and what, what people really want from us. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming in, Judy. I really appreciate you taking the time. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely be following along to see how long this project takes. And hopefully it takes, uh, comes up sooner than later. Awesome. Thank you, Jeff. Awesome. That was the uh, Chief Librarian for the Thompson Nicola Regional District and the library there, uh, Judy Moore. Coming up next, it's time to talk about building activity here in Kamloops. I'll be joined by Jason Dixon after this. You're listening to Jeff Andreas on Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the show here on a Wednesday. The city has put out its building permit summary for the first two months of the year, which also compares the year-to-date permits issued uh, compared to this time last year. Uh, so here now to talk a little bit more about this is Kamloops Building and Engineering Development Manager, Jason Dixon. Jason, thanks so much for taking the time to come in. No problem. Good morning. So uh, building here in Kamloops, it's been, uh, you know, record year after record year, it feels like, and, uh, you know, almost a bit of a broken record three years in a row. Is that uh, looking like it's going to be the case here for a fourth consecutive year now? Yeah, I think so. Um, up till now, I've been uh, hesitant to predict a record year after year, but this year, considering some things that uh, are in the works, in particular the patient care tower project at Royal Inland Hospital um, and some permits we expect to see this year, it's a huge construction value there, so I actually do expect to break the record yet again. So is this basically driven by some, you know, maybe smaller but bigger projects, like fewer projects but a lot bigger scale, I guess? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I think we've seen in the last number of years a lot more, um, in particular, multifamily apartment-type buildings. We went years and years without those type of projects in the community, and in the last five years, really, just a huge increase in the number of those projects. And, of course, they come with big construction values that really drive that number. 
Um, is there anything that you can speak to in terms of just number of permits? Like even just looking at the month of February, 128 last month compared to 64 in uh, 2019 for the month of February. I mean, it just it's a pretty significant jump year over year. Is there a particular reason or anything that can be attributed to it other than just, you know, more people looking to build? Um, I think so. Uh, I don't usually read too much into the statistics this time of year. The it, weather plays a big part of it. If you recall, last year in February, it was bitterly cold, mm -hmm. and things were quite a bit slower. This year, it's been a, a little milder winter, um, relatively speaking, and we've already seen definitely an increase in activity with spring on its way. So I think there's sort of just year-to-year -to -year variations, um, but we're clearly off to a good start. Now, one of the numbers that stood out to me was just looking at uh, industrial values. Uh, in February, $1.93 million permit was issued. Um, and, and last year in February, there was one $100,000 permit issued for uh, the industrial side of things. So, I mean, what is that? Why is that such a significant value? Um, that just one permit is for uh, a commercial industrial laundry facility out in Dallas. Um, and it's yeah, it just happens to be that permit came in sort of over the winter and happened to be processed and picked up in February. But yeah, it is a substantial project for sure. And when you look at, you know, sort of those one-offs like that, I mean, is that really what drives these huge increases when looking at year over year? I mean, you know, one one project can have such a substantial impact on just the, the, the monthly numbers, right? Yeah, you it really can. And we see that from month to month. Um, you know, if you look at January this year, we had an apartment building for $11 million. So that really, if you take that out of the mix, you know, January 2019, January 2020 aren't that drastically far apart. So at this time of year, when we're just getting started, one project can make a really big difference in the construction value for that month. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously looking at a, a pretty busy summer, I would assume, here moving forward. I mean, when looking at permits issued, uh, particularly when we're talking January and February, does a lot of this work typically get underway, I guess, you know, spring, summertime? Absolutely, yeah. People, you know, we always encourage people to... Uh, over the winter when when they can't get in if they can make their applications it's it's great because we know come spring everybody's going to be anxious to get out there get working and we every year see a rush on applications in the spring and it just makes it hard to process so when people can make their applications earlier in the winter we have time to process them i'm happy to have them sitting waiting at the counter for them when they need them and yeah it, it really works good um, yeah, so when we're looking, I mean, predicting here a fourth consecutive year for, for record number of permits issued, um, it seems to be, like I was saying, a trend year after year after year, you're looking at record numbers. Is there a time where you can foresee this slowing down? I mean, it's hard, hard to look this far into the future, I'm sure, but, you know, just given that it seems to be such a, a nice climate, I guess, for building here right now, I mean, is that going to change anytime soon? I don't know. Um, it certainly doesn't look like it to us right now. I don't see anything coming that's going to change this um, sort of trajectory we're on. I think, I think really people have realized Kamloops is a, a great place, and and relatively speaking, compared to places like Kelowna, we're still relatively uh, affordable. Um, and I think people have recognized that you know, Kamloops really is a good place to invest. And you know, when we look forward at projects that um, are coming up, we have some. It's nice to see some really big community projects. We have the patient care tower at Royal Inland Hospital, but we're also working on the addition for the Valley View Secondary School. We've got a couple of uh, affordable type 
um, projects coming up downtown. Um, between the two of them is 172 units um, that will sort of speak to that side of the market. Um, see, almost ready to issue a permit for the residents out at Orchards Walk. The second half of that building is another 88 units. Um, there's a seniors building on the North Shore on 7th Street that's just about ready to go out the door. That's another 54 units. Like, it's kind of a happening place, it seems. Yeah, that's, that's I think, a good news for all of us here, and especially when you're talking residential. I know I had uh, the real estate people on here yesterday, and we talked about just sort of a, a lack of new inventory always being an issue for driving home prices. But, um, you know, if more and more inventory is coming online, that's going to help. I think everyone who's looking to move here too. So can you speak a little bit about uh, residential and, and sort of what the trends are there right now? Well, we've seen a big shift towards multifamily and those more compact housing types over the last few years. And, and obviously sort of looking ahead, we see that happening more. Um, but then when I look at the, the applications to date this year, we've had 13 permits out the door for, for single family dwellings. So it shows that there's strength across that housing continuum so that it's not all focused in one sector. So we're seems to be providing housing for people at all different income levels, all different needs, wants. Um, and I think that's a sign of real strength and stability is that that whole residential market across the whole spectrum is, is strong. Perfect. Um, i got about a minute left here, Jason, but I did want to ask too, I mean, when we're looking at the beginning of the year and, and you said like that's kind of a time where you try to encourage people to, to get those applications in for permits so that you can, you know, get your work done in construction season in the spring, summer, and fall. Um, so with that said, do you, do you typically see bigger numbers at the beginning of the year in Jan, Feb, March, and then things tend to tail off when you're talking about issuing permits or, or is it pretty consistent? It can be pretty consistent. It shifts year to year. We get a lot of applications in the spring. We, we get two rushes each year. We get one in the spring when everybody's anxious to get going, and we get another one in the fall when everybody realizes, holy smokes, winter is unfortunately going to come back. <laughs> um, so you, we get those application rushes. As far as how they play into construction value, yeah, you might see a bit of bumps, but Often through the year, we definitely see construction values month to month increase as we get more into that construction season, spring through, you know, March through October type thing. Well, Jason, unfortunately, we're out of time, but thank you so much for coming in. I really appreciate it and uh, definitely good news here for the city of Kamloops. So um, we'll, we'll continue to watch the numbers grow. Absolutely. Thank you. Awesome. That was uh, Kamloops uh, Building and Engineering Development Manager, Jason Dixon. Coming up next, a new report from the Canadian Centre of Policy Alternatives BC office is asking for the government to ramp up efforts to reach zero emissions. We'll be talking a little bit more about that with the lead author of that report, Mark Lee, after this. <laughs> Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show and thank you so much for tuning in. The Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives here in BC is out with a new report today entitled Winding Down BC's Fossil Fuel Industries. This report digs into how the province needs to phase out its fossil fuel industries by 2050 if it's going to meet emissions targets. I'm joined now by lead author of this report, Mark Lee. Mark, thanks so much for taking the time. Hi, good morning. So just from an overall sense, I guess, you know, the, what is the point of this paper? I just want to give everyone kind of a nice summary of what this whole thing is about, uh, you know, trying to get ourselves off of these fossil fuel dependencies that we currently have in our province of BC. You know, why is this so important? 
Yeah, well, so I, I think, uh, you know, there's been talk about uh, climate action for, you know, more than 10 years uh, in B.C. Um, most of that action tends to focus on, uh, you know, buildings and housing and you know, transportation on the other side. Uh, not that much talks about uh, industry, and in particular, uh, B.C.'s fossil fuel export industries. Uh, so we export coal from the southeast uh, of the province in the Kootenays. Uh, we export a lot of natural gas uh, from the northeast uh, of the province. Uh, and, you know, right now, like talking about uh, phasing out those industries to be in line with the Paris Agreement, you know, so that we essentially they would be at zero or close to zero by 2050, is kind of politically uh, unthinkable. Um, and we think that's irresponsible, that politicians need to be talking about this and need to be leading the conversation uh, among the public. So really the report uh, is out there trying to start what we think is a necessary con conversation. Uh, we try to talk about what the main pillars of a managed wind-down framework would be so that we minimize the impacts on workers and communities uh, and we maintain a strong economy going forward. So, I mean, you, you, I think you kind of touched on it there in your initial response, just, you know, why this is such almost a, a taboo subject to have when, when talking from a political landscape. It's, you know, a lot of uh, people rely on these fossil fuel industries, if you will, to, to support their livelihood um, and probably not something that is uh, overly exciting for politicians to talk about when saying we need to get away from these uh, these types of, of industries and these types of jobs which do employ a lot of people and, and pay a lot of people quite well. So, um, you know, just almost something that you feel the need to, to bring forward just to launch pad a conversation because it seems to be something that a lot of people would be sidestepping when talking about industry itself. Um, yeah, and I think, I think you're right that, you know, politicians have not wanted to, to talk about this. Um, um, and, you know, I think it's challenging when you think about, okay, how do we get down to, you know, zero emissions by, uh, by 2050 and how do we plan for that? I think if we don't start talking about it, that change is going to be coming anyways. Uh, so you can imagine uh, five or ten years from now, um, Asian governments, because of, of uh, you know, disasters that happen due to climate change, you know, declare ambitious new uh, climate plans uh, that basically uh, dramatically reduce their imports of uh, BC's fossil fuel um, exports, uh, coal and, and our gas. So, you know, to some extent that change is coming and the question is, do we want to plan and get out ahead of it or do we want to just do nothing and then react after the fact? Part of the report does recommend, you know, that BC begin investing 2% of the province's GDP on an annual basis to the transition, um, which in 2019, the report says it equals about $6 billion. So, I mean... That sounds small when we're talking about the percentage, right? 2% of the GDP to put towards basically investing in, in green economy. That seems like a reasonable figure. But when you put it into the context of dollars and say we're going to spend $6 billion a year um, on this transition, that makes it sound a little bit more challenging, I suppose. So uh, just from that perspective of that figure, um, you know, is that a tough sell, do you think? Well, you know, I think governments can be uh, very uh, uh, you know, tight with the purse strings when it comes to uh, uh, provincial budgets. Um, you know, we need public investment and uh, private investment uh, at, at play here in order to make the transition. And, and But fundamentally, the challenge is shifting away from uh, ongoing new investments to grow the fossil fuel sector towards alternative green investments in uh, renewables and other types of green infrastructure and also things like renewable 
remediation of old coal mines and uh, gas wells uh, and that type of thing. So it would be a kind of a mix of public and, and private money. BC's total economy is uh, $300 billion. So uh, in that context, you know, it's, it's only uh, 2%. So if, can, can, we, can we spare two cents out of every dollar of income we have uh, in order to build a sustainable economy for the future? Uh, I'd like to believe uh, that we can uh, and that in doing so, we will actually, you know, create a lot of good jobs in the transition. And, and the report also calls for, for a, you know, a moratorium or a temporary ban on new fossil fuel leases. Um, and that almost seems like it's something that uh, could, be, could be difficult here in B.C. when we're a province, you know, that's talking about pipelines and we're talking about oil industry and, um, you know, the almost growth of those sectors here in, in British Columbia at this point in time. So to put a moratorium on new fossil fuel leases seems like something that might be not only challenging, but almost impossible given the work that's going on here in BC right now. Yeah, no, it's an interesting question. I mean, if you look at the, the BC budget from last month, uh, they are planning for a, a 26% increase in gas production uh, over the next three years. Uh, and that is, I think, completely inconsistent with um, what our commitments uh, under uh, the Paris uh, Agreement. Uh, it's also bad economics right now. There's a glut of, of gas uh, across North America and worldwide. Uh, the revolution known as fracking, where you sort of inject water and sand and chemicals a couple kilometers below the surface to crack uh, gas that's trapped in, in shale rock and bring it up. It's been so successful that prices are now at levels where companies themselves aren't making very much money. Uh, and in fact, in the U.S., we're seeing you know, billions of dollars of, of write-downs on the books of, of, of those companies. So to some extent, the marketplace is already starting to do this. What we're doing in B.C. is that we are actually subsidizing the development of those resources um, because we are not uh, taking the full uh, royalty payments that we should as the owners of that public uh, resource. Uh, we are giving all of these credits uh, against future royalties uh, for deep well drilling and infrastructure and, and all of the other investments associated uh, with fracking. So, uh, you know, a moratorium on new leases, uh, you know, simply makes sense in the context of trying to get to, um, you know, zero emissions by, by mid-century. Now, wh- one of the quotes that I have from you here is saying, you know, transition is going to happen whether we like it or not. If we start planning now, we can ensure that no one is left behind. So I think that's easy enough for people to understand, right? If, if uh, you know, we, we, can either, we can either go ahead and start taking action now, um, and whether we do it or not now, I mean, the consequences are going to come as a result. So, um, tra- like, tra- like I said, transition is going to happen whether we like it or not. So with that in mind, are, you know, are there a lot of examples out there of other places that are taking these steps and moving towards that greater economy? Is there somewhere that BC can look to to say that's an example of how we here in this province can move forward with taking these kinds of steps? Sure. I mean, I mean, first of all, I would just say that, you know, we have a lot of experience with unjust transition. So, you know, a decline in commodity prices or, or you know, restructuring made at corporate headquarters far away from British Columbia uh, can close down a mill and throw workers uh, out of work. And then, and then again, we're reacting after the fact. So the idea of a, a just transition is to have 
like a managed framework where we plan and if anything helps smooth out those uh, commodity cycles so that they're fair um, you know overall irrespective of, of things like climate change uh, I think in terms of positive examples uh, Alberta uh, actually brought in uh, a just transition planning framework for its workers uh, producing coal for electricity so as part of its commitment to phase out uh, coal-fired uh, electricity generation uh, they tabled uh, you know 45 billion dollar uh, package uh, to uh, invest in workers and and those communities uh, another one that's um, that's held up as a uh, as a model is Spain. Uh, the Spanish government uh, made a, a deal with the the largest uh, uh, union representing coal workers uh, for a whole um, you know multi billion um, dollar transition package. You know that included um, you know various reemployment and um, uh, retraining opportunities um, and community level development, um, uh, retirement provisions. You know all of these things. I think um, are. are are not just sort of theoretical anymore. They're actual real-world um, policy that you can point to and learn from. Now, Mark, I, I want to ask you specifically, you know, as you've put this report together and, and you know, you helped author this whole thing and, and you know, you went through a, a lot of research and, and looked around a lot of different examples of, of places that, uh, you know, are, are, like you had mentioned, Alberta and Spain is kind of some models that we can look to um, to kind of copy here in British Columbia. I'm just curious, you know, from you as an individual, I mean, are, are you worried about kind of where things are headed right now if these steps are not kind of taken into account uh, on a, on a a pretty swift basis are you, are you worried about kind of what the future of bc might look like if we don't start to take a little bit more action and a little bit more seriousness to this problem yeah, I think if you're not uh, worried, then then you're not paying enough attention. Um, you know, we've had a lot of wake-up calls over the last few years. Um, you know, Australia on fire uh, this past winter, I think, was probably the most recent example. But we've had our own forest fires. Now, last year, we kind of got off easy, but the the two previous summers, uh, you know, we had smoke and and impacts over BC. All of that cost a lot of money as well. You know, half a billion dollars uh, each of those years, and then you know. Who, it's hard to even say what the impacts were in terms of, of, of health and people with asthma and uh, and that kind of stuff. So uh, that all of those things are only going to get worse over time if we don't um, get our act together. Um, I think we've had a lot of these wake-up calls. Um, I think, you know, if the impetus uh, is there and the political will is there, we can make change happen uh, fairly quickly. Uh, it's not fundamentally an economic or, or technical problem uh, for, for going ahead. Uh, it's really about uh, political will and, and uh, you know, I would argue a very powerful fossil fuel industry that has a disproportionate influence in the halls of power. Oh, I 100% agree with everything you just said there. And yeah, if, if you're not worried about what's happening to our environment, uh, then yeah, I think you are somewhat living under a rock, right? You have to be aware that climate change is real and, and we need to take steps in order to reverse some of these uh, disasters that are happening more and more frequently as time goes on. But I mean, from an economic perspective here in BC, are you worried if we don't start taking some steps now to transition away from the dependence on the fossil fuel industry that BC could be suffering as a province in the not too distant future? Um, well, I mean, I think the reality is that the, the, the fossil fuel industries in B.C. are relatively small in terms of the, the total economy. Uh, that's not to say they're not, um, you know, much more important regionally, you know, in the Kootenays for coal and in the Northeast uh, for gas. Um, but again, if we don't act and and plan now, then change may be imposed upon us uh, 
uh, down the road, and then we'll be reacting after the fact, um, and we won't be able to uh, have a, a just transition. So uh, th- that's why we're trying to have this conversation now. Um, you know, we want people to be able to, to talk about how we make this. Um, we want people to think that we're all in this together and that we're not going to leave anyone behind. Uh, and we talk about ways that we can pay for it and, and make that change happen. So it, this isn't the final word. I think it's the first, um, it's the first salvo in a bigger conversation. Uh, but it, it's definitely the conversation we need to be having as a province. Good stuff, Mark. I think that's about all I have for you right now in terms of questions. I think I could probably go a little bit longer if we wanted to, but we're running out of time. I will give you one chance here, though. Anything else that you want to add that you uh, you think the, uh, the audience should know about here? Um, well, I mean, it, it's the, the politics of energy uh, transition are very challenging right now. Um, obviously, the coastal gas link is top of mind here in B.C., but uh, tech's decision to uh, pull its uh, frontier oil sands uh, mine because of potential conflict with uh, Canadian uh, climate policy, I, I think tells us that, you know, companies are starting to get it. Increasingly, we're seeing a divestment from um, uh, pension funds and foundations and, and other uh, players in the capital markets. Uh, in the UK, we're seeing the, the UK government uh, basically not going ahead with a new runway for Heathrow Airport because that would be in conflict with our climate objectives. So, you know, we've been living in this place where we've been in conflict, um, on the one hand, saying extract more fossil fuels uh, with one ministry of the government and on the other ministry of the government saying we need to reduce our, 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 our carbon emissions and we can't have it both ways forever. So these conflicts are finally coming home to roost um, and so we need to have this conversation because um, you know there are risks of doing nothing and it's better to, to plan and think these things through ahead of time. Awesome stuff Mark. Well thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Lots of good information here and, and hopefully um, you know some people take the time to, to read it and, and heed the message and make some decisions here going forward as a result. I, I I appreciate you taking the time. All right. Thanks so much. Take care. That was Mark Lee, Senior Economist at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, located, of course, at the BC office. Coming up next, it is time for a new edition of That's Whack Wednesday, so please stick around. The voice of your community. Radio NL 610 AM News Talk at RadioNL.com. Here's Jeff Andreas. Hello and welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show. And thank you so much for tuning in here on March the 3rd. Yes, it is Wednesday. It is the middle of the week. Hump day, if you will. It all goes downhill from here, both in the week itself and on this show. It is time for That's Whack Wednesday. It's That's Whack Wednesday. I would be remiss if I didn't start by talking about the coronavirus, the novel coronavirus, the new coronavirus, COVID-19, whatever you wish to call it, it's worth discussing at this point in time. Most of Canada's 33 cases of this coronavirus are in Ontario, but the latest three have been diagnosed right here in British Columbia. Our province's health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, says a woman and a man in his 60s tested positive after returning from Iran, while the third case, another woman in her 30s, developed symptoms in isolation. That's not good. Or whack, I should say, that people are developing these symptoms while in isolation. Oh, that is whack. Here's an interesting thing that's happening today. When it comes to the virus, though, Facebook 
is giving the World Health Organization free advertising to help fight all of the misinformation circulating online about COVID-19. What a great idea. I know when I am looking to find out true and verified information, the first place I think to look is Facebook. CEO Mark Zuckerberg says the company is working with national health ministries and global organizations to spread timely and accurate information. That sounds like a positive thing, right? The world's largest social media network wants to make sure people are learning the truth. Except, my issue with this, why is this the case today? Zuckerberg has talked about not wanting, you know, to limit what's available on Facebook, not wanting to censor things, not wanting to give in to those that want only verified legitimate reports on there for whatever reason. I don't know exactly why he wants to keep all this misinformation out there, but he does. And for the some reason today, all of a sudden, misinformation about coronavirus is what's tipping him over the edge to say, no, maybe we shouldn't be spreading and allowing this type of information on our social media network. I'm sorry, but something about the timing of this, something about this whole situation when it comes to Mark Zuckerberg all of a sudden wanting to make sure he spreads the truth, I'm sorry, but I think that, well, I think that's pretty whack. He's a whack job, there's no question about it. I will say this, though, no matter what Mark Zuckerberg says and no matter what people post, I know I will not believe what I read on Facebook, at least not without trying to verify that information somewhere else. I'll take it with a grain of salt. Even if it says it's from the WHO, I'm not going to just believe it's from the WHO until I confirm it is from the WHO. So that's how I feel about Facebook trying to spread the truth about this coronavirus. Now, I want to stick with corona here for one more second because this i found quite interesting even tinder is getting into the mix about telling people they may want to take a break from having fun between the sheets in order to stay safe the dating app has now put a pop-up on its app telling users quote while you want to continue to have fun protect yourself from the coronavirus because it is more important so maybe now when you go on those tinder dates Maybe leave the condom at home, but take that surgical mask with you. That's the best way to keep yourself safe from this coronavirus. I got to say, though, you know, you know things are getting serious if dating apps are starting to get involved about spreading information about a virus. If a dating app is telling you to be a little bit more protective and to be a little bit more safe, I think it's a pretty clear sign that things are getting pretty serious. All right, let's switch topics here just a little bit to end things off. I want to talk about bicycles for a second. We had a story here on our news run this week talking about the possibility of insurance for cyclists. The idea alone, for me, I got to say... That is whack. Yeah, the idea arose after ICBC announced sweeping changes to how it covers automobile drivers, which then prompted calls to impose these new licensing and insurance requirements on cyclists and e-scooter riders. After a cyclist allegedly assaulted a pedestrian near Vancouver in 2015, one city councillor at that time then urged the city of Vancouver to explore a bicycle registration program. Now... Collisions between cyclists and pedestrians and between bikes and cars have generated countless court cases throughout the years. Here's the problem, though. Collisions with cyclists just aren't that common. And when they do happen, the majority of times, when especially when it involves a vehicle, it's the driver's fault. Now, 
If you ask any driver out there, most will probably say that cyclists are a nuisance on the road. They can be dangerous because sometimes they're unpredictable about whether they're weaving in and out of traffic, things like that. That is a very rare cyclist. People get worried about hitting them with their vehicles, and that, I know, can be a legitimate concern because you don't want to hit another person. I get that, but really, it often seems to come down to, in my opinion... It's one's confidence in themselves behind the wheel. If you are a confident driver, you should be able to handle the fact that there's a cyclist on the road with you and be able to avoid hitting him. I think that's pretty common sense. Now, common causes of cycling-related injuries include incorrect riding posture and demanding too much on your body. Only 7% of cycling injuries involve collisions with other vehicles. Now, you're actually more likely to hurt yourself by falling off your bike or hitting a stationary object than to hit a vehicle. There. I think that pretty much sums it up why probably there's less of a need for insurance on your bicycle. Now, to top it off, we are moving to an economy that's looking to reduce emissions, reduce greenhouse gas emissions. If you add extra fees to things like bikes and e-scooters, it will only deter people from switching to those as modes of transportation, something that I know the government is not going to want to do. Attorney General of BC and Minister of Ch- in Charge of ICBC, Dave Eby, has actually been on record to refer to bike coverage as counterproductive despite admitting that drivers have sent him letters advocating for the change. You got out of line, you got whacked. Everybody knew the rules. This has been That's Whack Wednesday. That's Whack Wednesday with Jeff Andreas. Well, that about wraps things up for me here today. I want to thank all my guests for joining me, and a big thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, whether you join me here for a short while or a long while, just know I enjoyed our time while it lasted. I'll be back here tomorrow morning at 6. Jason Hewlett will be filling in for me. Have yourself a great rest of your day, and we'll be back on Thursday.